Living on Earth with a Divine Nature. This is part six. Reminded of things we already know. And the text this morning is 2 Peter chapter 1. We're going to look at 12, 13, 14, and 15. Peter writes and he says, Therefore, I intend... So what he's doing is on purpose. This this is not Peter being absent-minded and saying stuff, forgetting that he's already said it before. This is something that he does on purpose. I intend always to remind you of these qualities. We studied those qualities in, in 5, 6, and 7. Though you know them and are established, so they already know them, and are established in the truth that you have. I think it right as long as I am in this body, he means as long as he's alive and breathing, to, to stir you up by way of reminder. Okay, there it is again. That was the first time. There's the second time. Since I know that the putting off of my body will be soon. He's going to die soon. As our Lord Jesus Christ made clear to me, Jesus told Peter how he was going to die. And I will make every effort so that after my departure, that's after he's dead and gone, you may be able be able at any time to recall. So that's the third time. So three times in four verses, Peter uh, makes it clear that he's writing to these believers and he's writing to them about the sanctifying power of memory. The sanctifying power of memory. So the idea here. It's an important one. Memory does more than simply recall the past. If we have no memory, we are adrift. Because memory is more than just dealing with the past. It's the mooring to which our present identity is tied. So memory of the past... It interprets the present, and it charts the future. And I knew as soon as I said that, the people are thinking, well, what in the world do you mean, Pastor Don? I want you to, there's a fascinating book. It's an old book now, but written, it's a true account, written by Dr. Oliver Sacks. The title of the book is The Man Who Mistook His Wife for a Hat. I'm not kidding. And he tells the story, the true story of Jamie. Jamie had Korsakoff's syndrome. It's a rare neurological disorder. When Dr. Oliver Sacks met Jamie in 1975, I'm reading now, Jamie seemed likable, robust, genial, and not, quotes, Helpless, demented, confused, and disoriented as an outside diagnosis had stated. Jamie walked into the doctor's office with a cheery, Hiya, Doc. Nice morning. Do I take this chair here? Sachs writes that Jamie was cooperative, answered all the questions that the doctor asked. He remembered his 
childhood home, his friends, his school. Remember joining the Navy in 1943. He had been stationed on a submarine, and he could still remember Morse code. He recalled, in fact, he almost relived his Navy service through to the end of the war in 1945. But that's where Jamie's memories stopped. Completely stopped. Jamie could not remember anything from 1945 to the present, 1975. 30 years. He thought Truman was still president. The periodic table stopped with uranium. No one had ever been to the moon. He could not recall anything that had happened more than just a few minutes in the past. He thought he was 19 years old, not his actual 49. Dr. Sachs showed him a mirror, and Jamie gasped, gazed at the middle-aged man with the bushy gray hair, and he was shocked. In Dr. Sachs' words, He suddenly turned ashen. He gripped the sides of the chair. What's going on? What's happening to me? Is this a nightmare? Am I crazy? Dr. Sachs calmed Jamie down by taking him to a window to watch a ball game in the park below, removing the bewitching mirror. He left him alone for two minutes in the quiet and then returned. Jamie was still gazing at the window with pleasure at the kids in the park. He wheeled around with a smile on his face. Hi, Doc. Nice morning. You want to talk to me? Do I take this chair here? There was no sign of recognition on his frank, open face. Haven't we met before, Dr. Sachs asked. No, can't say that we have. Over the next nine years... Dr. Sachs and his patients were introduced and reintroduced daily. Jamie stayed in the convalescent home where Dr. Sachs worked, but he never learned his way around the halls. He was good at rapid games of checkers and tic-tac-toe, but always lost at chess because the moves were too slow. Dr. Sachs had never, quotes, encountered, encountered, even imagined such a power of amnesia. The possibility of a pit into which everything, every experience, every event would fathomlessly drop. The staff at the home for the remaining nine years continually spoke of Jamie as simply a lost soul. It's a terrible thing to have no accurate memory of who you are. It's a terrible thing to have no accurate memory of why you are here. It's a terrible thing to not have any memory of where you are going. Because these are the things that make up 
an identity. If you don't have an accurate memory of certain things, you can't place yourselves accurately anywhere. You can't make yourself fit. You can't really perceive what's going on in the present. We are truly lost souls if we forget how to place ourselves properly. March 10th, 2019, in the body of Christ and in our community. We will still try to follow Jesus, but we will live our Christian lives like Jamie lived his life. We'll forget big slices of our identity. We won't place ourselves accurately in our Christian walk. We'll forget who we are and why we're here. We'll think we have more important things to do on Sunday than to go to church. We'll think our primary assignment here is to accumulate material goods and be successful. We will try to secure our lives around personal pleasure. We will be blind to the spiritual realities that give us our identity in this world. We'll be Jamie. Lost souls. Do you see what I'm getting at here? Peter knows this. I suppose there's nothing more characteristic of human life than our tendency to stop remembering. We can learn great truths. We can study important subjects. I mean, we can meditate on and ponder the great thoughts of others. But I think we know that with rare exceptions, the things we put into our minds don't always stay at the front of our minds. Things once considered important kind of slip, they slip into a fog of just unintentional non-application in our lives. And just because we knew them once doesn't protect us from that. Peter knows that truth we once learn doesn't always stay impactful to our present lives. And so, as Peter comes to the close of this first section of his letter at verse 15, he knows that many people will be thinking that he hasn't really been saying anything new. He hasn't been unfolding any new doctrine or teaching. So, so what does he do? He wants them to know the importance of these opening words. He, he wants them to know they aren't above hearing what he's saying. He wants them to remember that spiritual growth and blessing comes from remembering. Think of it as re-membering, like reconnecting, remembering, joining up our lives with the things that are important but we don't consider often enough. Point number one. 
Peter wants them to remember the difference between knowing truth and possessing truth. I get that in the 12th verse. Therefore, I intend always to remind you of these qualities. So there's the reminding. Though you know them. And are established in the truth that you have. So, so there's something interesting in the way Peter says, I know you know this. You already know this. In other words, this is not the first time that even I've taught you this, Peter says. But, but what I want you to do is I want you to monitor the effect of these truths on your life right now. Think of the things you know, and then think of how they are affecting you. Do those things mesh? Peter says. He's going back to the idea that he stressed in, in verse 8. If these qualities are yours and are increasing, they will keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so, so Peter probes a bit here. Are, are, these, are you remembering these things in the sense that they are increasing in your life? Are you becoming more and more fruitful in them? Or do, do you have all sorts of things that you've learned, you know, you can repeat, but they aren't changing you in any way? So, so is your Christian life filling up with information, or is that nourishing process still happening after 35, 40, 50 years of following Jesus? Are you being transformed today? Is your spiritual life still gaining momentum? So that's the issue here. Peter is reminding them of things they already know. Perhaps at one time they knew them with a degree of passion. But truths can, can lose their grip. They can lose their impact on our minds with the passing of time. We get used to things that we know. We, we carry a lot of truth around like the extra weight around our tummies. It's just there without thinking about it. Peter says, I don't want you just to know these truths like you, you know how to breathe. I want you to think about them. I want you to relish them. I want you to cherish them. I want you to practice them. That's what he means. I want to remind you of stuff you know. Don't be like Jamie. Point number two. There's another problem. In addition to our natural forgetfulness, we live in a world that is hostile to the incubation of spiritual truths in our hearts and in our minds. So, what I'm saying is Christians have to take this environment that we live in. We have to take that into account. Think about Peter. Peter knew about this. Peter remembered how he failed the Lord, but it wasn't in the upper room that he failed the Lord. It was when there was 
an immediate context that was hostile to Jesus, that presented a threat to his faith, the pressure of the moment, and the surrounding hostility against Jesus, and Peter blew it. So, so Peter knows there's nothing automatic about retaining the power of spiritual conviction in a fallen world, in a hostile world. Jesus knew about it. Look what he said in Matthew chapter 13, verse 19. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom, that'd be like now, and doesn't, underst- doesn't understand it means, doesn't mean they don't know the nouns and the verbs, that, that it's just too deep and we can't comprehend it. Understanding means understanding the importance of it. When that happens, so so when you when you're in church and you're you know you're half fiddling with your iPhone and kind of hearing what's going on and looking around, when when that happens, don't think that you're the only one involved. Jesus says, here's what happens in churches all over Canada. The evil one comes, snatches away. You know the devil goes to church every Sunday? He sits right out there. He looks to see people who aren't really relishing what they're hearing, and he comes and he takes that out of their minds. Jesus said so. The evil one comes, look at this verb, snatches away what has been sown in the heart. This is what was sown along the path. So Jesus is, is careful to show that there's more going on than just natural forces whenever we hear spiritual truth. It's a big problem. It's a big problem because, because it's, it's where people hear, where the seed gets sown, and that happens more than anywhere else in the body of Christ, in the church. I mean, they're not sowing the seed of the word in Upper Canada Mall. They're not sowing the seed of the word on Netflix. This is where that kind of stuff happens. Jesus is talking about what happens. You know, I'm I'm working through reading the Bible this year like you are. He's talking about what happens when I take my Bible out and start reading. There's not just me and the Holy Spirit involved in that process. He says the devil works, does not understand it. I want to explain that a bit. What he means is the devil works to cause me, Pastor Don, he works to cause me to undervalue the truth that I study and hear and read and pray about. He works to cause me to undervalue it. He, he distracts me from thinking about things that I studied and wrote down and made notes on. He hates that. He wants to fill my mind with other things. There's golf on TV. There's friends. There's places to go. There's stuff to do. Things to buy. He, he works at that in my life. He works hard to bubble up 
pride so that I will think, you know, I've been a pastor of this church for 37 years. I think I know this by now. And he says, Don, you never do accumulate points with me, you know. You just, you're just constantly little Donnie Horbin. You need to just sit at my feet. Right? Perhaps most of all, I want to talk about this for a minute. Here's what he does. In a world like ours, drunkened with the idea that intolerance is the only sin left, he comes with the idea of relativism. He, he works hard to make people like us think that the beliefs we hold are just our opinion about truth. I want to talk about that more in just a minute. And so, so Peter reminds these people of these truths because he knows, he knows their own tendency to allow spiritual truth to get a little bit muddied, a little bit foggy, a little less applied a little less urgent. He knows that. And secondly, he knows the activity of the, the culture around us and the spirit of the age to snatch away. Unless these things, he says, unless these things are constantly re-impressed on our minds, we'll end up like Jamie. And we won't be able to figure out where we are or what we're doing. Point number three. There's teaching here about how our hearts are stirred up to fresh love and passion for God. I get that in verse 13. I think it right. As long as I'm in this body, I love these words, to stir you up. Stir you up. Say that with me. Stir you up by way of reminder. I want to stir you up, Peter says to these Christians. Now, a lot of people get nervous when they hear that, that, that the Bible even uses those kinds of words. It, it sounds like Peter's just trying to pump people up in some kind of emotional frenzy. And I guess, I guess, there are different ways in which people can be stirred up. There is a kind of stirring up that you'll see at concerts, and it's, it's, it's not wicked, but it's just an emotional frenzy kind of thing not bad it's just usually short-lived jesus had crowds john records it jesus had crowds that came they saw the miracles they saw the stuff he did and they were all excited and it says they believed in him and then it says but jesus wasn't all that impressed with their belief john says that he knew that kind of adoration and then there's a deeper kind of stirring up Think of that concept of reminding. Only think of it as, remember this? Re. Reminding. Kind of a, a reshaping of the mind. A revitalizing of the mind, the thoughts. So, so Peter's talking about a, a mental reconnecting with truth. Truths that have become disconnected. So think of it again as re dash membering joining up like the fingers on your hand the members in the body 
a reconnecting with truth. It's kind of like the stirring up you do when maybe you shake a bottle of salad dressing. You know, you're not really adding anything new to the equation. Nothing's changed. You're just taking stuff that's kind of settled to the bottom, and before you put it on your salad, I was in restaurants where the top wasn't on tight, and they did this and it all. So it's, it's, it's putting truth back into circulation so it flavors everything again. That's what Peter's talking about. Please notice that in doing this, wise, old, experienced Peter, he's, he's saying something really important, and he's saying something not very popular. Most of us need something other than what we think we need. Most of us need something other than what we think we need. So the kind of excitement, the kind of power we're looking for in our Christian lives is not going to be found by some brand new thing. It's going to be found in some very old things brought to life again in our hearts. It's going to come from things long forgotten, things that are in the fog. Get into that Bible. Get into that church. Get back to those devotional habits. Pay attention to holiness. Look at the kind of things Peter's been talking about the opening 11 verses, the kind of things he says he wants to stir up. Here's what he wants to stir up. This idea, I'm a servant of Jesus, verse 1. And you are too, that's your identity. There's nothing more important than being instantly and totally obedient to Jesus. You're a servant. Some of the things we sing and say, you'd think Jesus was here to serve us. We get it all backwards. We're here to serve him. Here's something else that needs stirring up. It's in the fourth verse. You need to grow in the knowledge of God's precious and magnificent promises. Here's something else. You have to push back spiritual inertia. That's in verses 3 through 7. Make sure these things are increasing in your life. Trying to stand still in your Christian walk is like trying to stand still on a two-wheel bike. The only way it stays up is if you keep moving. That's how your Christian life works. It only works when it's moving forward. So we we do our duty. We read read those verses 3 through 7. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. I wonder if you believe that. Through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises. So that through them, what's the them here? Say it out loud. It's the promises, right? Through them. Get this. How many many of the promises of God's word do you know? I mean, right now. How many promises from God's word do you know? Pastor Don, who cares? Well, 
through them you may become partakers of the divine nature. Does that interest you at all? How about all sorts of habits that gum up your life spiritually? Well, through them, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. Do you get tripped up because of sinful desires all the time? Partakers of a divine nature, escaping corruption. It's tied to knowing these promises and applying them to your life. Fourth point, I've got to jump ahead. There is, I said I'd come back to this. There is the constant danger of conforming to the spirit of our age and beginning to treat absolute revealed truth as though it were a matter of changing human opinion. I know that's too long to be a sermon point. But it's so important, I wanted to make sure I didn't leave anything out. Peter talks about this in that 12th verse. I intend always to remind you of these qualities, though you know them and are established in the truth that you have. And then you look at verse 15. I will make every effort so that after my departure, you may, be, you may be able at any time to recall these things. So what he means is they've got it, they've got it memorized in such a way that they can play it any time when they need it. it so, so it's not just stuff that's here. It's stuff that's, that's here and here. They, they have it there. It's usable. Peter wants them to be established in these Great truths. He, he says he wants them grounded. That's what established means. Fixed on them. What he means is he doesn't want them roaming from one school of thought to another. Spiritual fads are for rookies. He says in that 15th verse, I'm going to make every effort so that after I'm dead and gone, you may be able at any time to recall. Notice, it's, it's these things. The stuff he's still talking. He'll be dead and gone. A generation will come. Another generation will come. What are they going to be thinking about? The same things. Do you see it there? These things. Not different things. These things. You've probably noticed that this is something desperately lacking in the mindset of a lot of churches today. So many things expressed as settled truth in the scriptures, they are constantly being screened through the tastes of the culture. I mean, there's stuff you do, we're afraid to say anymore. So if we aren't comfortable with what the Bible says about something, or we think someone else won't be comfortable with it, after all, we want to reach them with the love of Jesus. So if they aren't comfortable with it, well, then we should find a way of adjusting it. It's very common logic. And we didn't start thinking that way by accident. In the last 25 years, with the odd exception... At one time or another, every person in this sanctuary has been educated by people who were relativists. 
we've been taught that virtually everything that can't be touched or weighed is a matter of opinion. You, you've probably noticed. You've probably noticed, if you watch TV at all or blog or that almost every public voice we hear has long ago stopped talking about the truth and labels everything as my truth. This is my truth. This is your truth. So, so there's no good reason for believing that any one personal opinion or value is any better than any other. And, and somewhere, at one time or another, we've all been taught that only narrow-minded, bigoted, intolerant, judgmental people think that one way of evaluating things is objectively better than another. How dare you? We're so impressed with that kind of phony logic that Christians have become increasingly uncomfortable with just an absolute foundation of revealed truth. Just established there. Christians are now actually starting to feel apologetic for things that other people don't like in the Bible. Have you noticed that? And there are many things that seem outdated, prudish, narrow, and Christians start to blush and second-guess their convictions when push comes to shove. Peter has none of that. None of it. He's going to die soon. And he says, these things that I'm teaching you, those are the things you stay with. And then you're going to get old and die, and your kids are going to grow up, and those are the things they need to stay with. And then that generation is going to die, and another generation is going to come up, and these are the things that they have to stay with. He wants them established in the truths that he's been teaching. He wants them so established in it that they won't be able to get them out of their minds long after he stopped preaching and writing to them. Paul stresses the same idea. We're almost done. You know these words in Ephesians. And he gave some as apostles, some as prophets, some as evangelists, some as pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints, for the work of service, to the building up of the body of Christ. Until we all attain to the unity of faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a mature man, to the measure and stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. As a result, here's how you can tell when people are growing up, Paul says. We are no longer to be children, tossed here and there by waves, carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness in deceitful scheming. So maturity and faith, according to Paul, Peter says the same thing, it's not just accumulating correct doctrine. That's part of it. Maturity and faith means knowing what not to believe, what not to accept, what to renounce. You, you can't become mature in faith just by embracing. If you're going to become mature, you also have to reject things that are contrary to the knowledge of God revealed in the Scriptures. Little kids, you have to watch what they put in their mouths, right? They'll swallow anything. That, that's, that's what Paul's talking about. Last point.
pass a pure living faith on to those who come after you. Aren't these beautiful words in 14 and 15? I know that the putting off of my body will be soon, as our Lord Jesus Christ made clear to me. And I'll make every effort so that after my departure, you may be able at any time to recall these things. What, what should people like we, people who know they're going to die, you know that, don't you? So we're not like Jamie. We've got our, we've got our memory. We, we, we have our position framed accurately where we are presently and where we're going. What should people who know they're going to die, what should they dedicate their lives to? Well, Peter tells us. Peter knew that he was going to die soon. By the way, just if you're interested, here's how he knew that. Jesus is the speaker. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. John editorially says, this he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. So Jesus tells Peter, you know what, they're going to dress you in stuff you don't want to be dressed in. They're going to stretch out your hands. And you're going you're gonna to die. But you'll glorify me. <laughs> That's how you're going to die. And so Peter knew he was going to die. Now in our text, our text. Peter says, Jesus added some details about that death. Um, since I know that the putting off of my body will be soon, as our Lord Jesus Christ made clear to me. It's going to be soon. So what do we do with our lives when we know we're dying soon? And here's the exhortation. What should dying people give their lives to? Y- you don't know the time, maybe of your departure the way Peter did, but you do know the shortness of your earthly life. You, you know you don't have time to invest your life in everything. So what should dying people concentrate on? Peter tells us. I want to influence people for Jesus after I'm gone. I want my life to still be influencing people to Jesus after I'm off the scene. I want to do something with my life so there'll be a crowd of people who whatever they thought of me, they're going to remember Jesus. That's what I want to do with my life. That's what I'm living for. I want to spread the gospel. I want to, I want to help people have a deep faith that they can follow Jesus when my influence isn't there for them anymore. You have friends. Who's influencing whom? Do they drag you down the pipe or are you helping them to see Jesus? Maybe you're the only one in the crowd. Then your mission is all that much more important. Right? I wasn't very enthusiastic. 
you have a husband, you have a wife, you have children, every life touches another. Paul says we don't live to ourselves, we don't die to ourselves. Take time to instill a godly example. Take time to instill godly teaching. Let your words brace people against the ungodly culture all around them. Give people courage with your stand for Jesus in the face of opposition. Give to world missions for crying out loud. What are you planning to do with your money after you're dead and gone? Plant seeds around the world that will germinate and reproduce long after you're in heaven. Your ministry will still be happening. Make your example unforgettable. Leave a pattern that is so clearly dedicated to another kingdom that those coming after you can't possibly miss it. And I heard a voice from heaven saying, write this. Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Blessed indeed, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors. By the way, that's when you get to rest from your labor on earth serving Jesus. When you're dead. But you don't get to retire from it until then. That they may rest from their labors. I love this. Their deeds follow them. Their deeds follow them. I go to lots of funerals. I don't do as many of them as I used to, just with the the busyness of the church and everything else. But I go to lots of funerals. Do you ever picture yours? And what people might say? Here's what I've noticed, especially in the church. And I guess it's understandable. Everybody who dies, everybody who dies is a fabulous human being. Have you noticed that? Doesn't matter, doesn't matter who the funeral is for, doesn't matter. Everybody who dies is a is just the most wonderful, glorious person that ever walked the face of the earth. I don't know what they'll say about me at mine. I'm going to be careful about who I line up to speak. I'll be delighted. They don't have to say I was the most talented, the most handsome, the best singing voice they had ever heard. They don't have to say that. I hope somebody says, you know what? He was in that church for X number of years. And I'll never forget the way he just hammered over those same things from the Bible over and over again. If someone says that, I'll sit up in my coffin and go, praise you, Jesus. And if they drag the hymn that they're singing, (laughs) I'm going to scream. That's what your life's about. Not just because I'm a pastor. Maybe you're a business person. You're a carpenter. You're a plumber. You're in real estate, insurance, you're a teacher. See, that, that's just your cover. What you're here for 
is to extend Christ's kingdom in every way you possibly can. And God's plan is so ingenious. He will put people in a police department. He'll even give them uniforms so that they can go in there with the kingdom of Jesus. He'll put teachers in classrooms so that they can influence the world for Christ. After I'm gone, Peter says, you'll never forget these things. So, church, let's not be like Jamie. Jamie Christians will think that they're here just to be a really good architect or to set up enough money that they can retire early with gobs of fun and leisure. But that's because they forgot. They don't know where they are, they don't know who they are, and they don't know why they're here. Let's remember. And everyone said, 